when you go to camp meeting all day, morning, afternoon, and night, hear about 13 sermons, shout until you're hoarse, cry so much till you got a headache, and go home just exhausted, go to sleep and wake up in the morning, and you got the little lingering headache and just still wiped out. I think that's what a hangover is like. I think. If it is, it is a good hangover. They said these men are not drunk, as ye suppose. They're drunk, just not like you think they are. Drunk on the Holy Ghost. The world, the world has nothing on the church. The greatest songwriters, the greatest songwriters are church songwriters. The greatest singers are singing in churches. I'm going to tell you, American Idol, The Voice, all the rest of it, it ain't got nothing on the Hensons and the Lindsays. And, and, and it, it just doesn't. It doesn't get any better than this. And so thank you so much, preacher, for letting me be here and coming. And, and my cup is full. And uh, thank you so much for, for the privilege. I, I've got Brother Tony and Sister D. Smith with me. They are representatives with our printing ministry. There's a table back there in the back, and I hope that you'll go by and uh, look at it and see what's there. And we print Bibles and Scripture portions, send it to missionaries around the world. And I've been doing that since 1984. And uh, we're just right now, Victory Baptist Press is just right now, this week or maybe next week, uh, finishing a run of John and Romans, 390,000 John Romans in Shona for the country of Zimbabwe that is headed there in just a couple of weeks. And uh, my son Jacob will be going over there in August and preaching in a lot of bush churches. We're excited about that. And getting ready to buy another container load of paper, buy, print 25,000 Spanish Bibles for Peru and just keep on going. And uh, I appreciate it if you go by and look at the table be familiar with our ministry. If you're not, get on the mailing list if you want to do that. But Brother Smith, representing us, is here this week. And so he texted me a verse right before I got up. You know how sometimes preachers will text you a verse just as an encouragement to help you because he knows I'm a little bit nervous about tonight. And it's Jeremiah 23, verse 26. And so I looked at it real quick. And here's what he texted me. How long shall this be in the heart of the prophets that prophesy lies? Yea, they are prophets of the deceit of their own heart. And I thought, what in the world? That's not very encouraging right before I get up to preach. But I misread it. He actually texted verse 28. <laughs> he that hath my word, let him speak my word faithfully. That's a lot better, brother. And so I'll take verse 28 and not verse 26. But anyway, great to be here. I called my wife last night on the way home, but they gravely asked if I'd stay over for tonight. I was originally only going to be here Monday and then last night and then headed home and he asked if I'd stay over. And I called my wife last night and I told her, he said, I'm going to stay over an extra day. She said, that's wonderful. I said, no, it's not. I said, because when I came, you know, I was only going to be here through Tuesday night. I said, I only brought uh, two sermons, two ties and two changes of underwear and I'm out of all of it. I'm out of all of it. And my wife, my wife was very concerned that I would dare to wear the same tie twice. It, she's, she's horrified at it. She really is. And um, 
she wanted me to go to Belks and to buy an extra tie, and that ain't happening. I was able to go to Walmart last night take care of the undergarment problem, but they didn't have any more sermons there. And so I got some of it taken care of, but I was, but I was out. And so I'm, I do have to go home because I am, I am out. And so y'all pray for me. I'll do the best that I can tonight. And I love my wife. Boy, I love what Brother Dorsey said this afternoon. Brother John Dorsey preached on taking care of your wife and providing for her. I don't know if he's in here tonight, but I tell you, that was a blessing to me. And I believe that. My wife believes in that as well. And I uh, really do. My, my wife, God bless her. I, I love my wife. Thank God for a godly lady. And my wife, she's not a high-maintenance woman, but she likes nice things. She's all into this Pandora and, and um, what's those little um, uh, Oakleyani things or the little dangly things. I don't know what you call them. She likes all that kind of stuff. She likes Michael Kors, and he's probably queer, but she likes his purses, and so that's fine. I don't know. I don't know. I know know he makes a lot of money off of them things. I know that much. She likes all that kind of stuff, and and I'm glad that she does. I'm glad to take care of her, and uh, she likes for me to go off on meetings and preach. Uh, because what I'm doing is I'm making money for her to be me, me for the grandbabies. I go off and preach and she goes shopping and, and she likes that and I'm fine with it and love my wife and love my family. Thank God for them. And God's been good to me. Second Corinthians chapter 8 tonight, I'm going to take you there as just a springboard into my thought tonight. And then I'm going to take you to several other passages throughout the message and try to get up and get out of the way as soon as I can and, and just got a thought for you tonight. I've preached it a few other times and pray that the Lord would help me tonight. I do want to try to magnify the Lord. And so 2 Corinthians chapter 8, I'll read a couple of verses and try to get started into the message. And you pray for me if you would. It's the only thing that the Lord would lay on my heart today. And so uh, we'll see here in a little bit if, if we're on. And so you, you pray. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse number 1. Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit... Of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. How in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power they were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon you, take upon us the fellowship of ministering to the saints. And this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God, insomuch that we desired Titus, that as he had begun, so he would also finish in you the same grace also. Therefore, as ye abound in everything, in faith and utterance, knowledge and diligence, and in your love to us, see that ye abound in this grace also. You may recognize this text as a missions text. It's about the subject of giving. Paul is challenging the church at Corinth to give and is using the generosities of the churches at Macedonia as inspiration. He basically is telling one church about the kind of offering that another church gave, hoping to inspire them in their own kind of giving. And the only point that I want to take from the passage is then I'm going to go somewhere else 
And this is the only point that I want to take from this passage, is that there is a record of what the church at Macedonia gave. We're not told the dollar amount, but Paul knew how much that church gave. And of course, God knew how much that church had given as well. And so this is my only thought from this text right here, and then I'm going somewhere else, is that God, that God recognizes giving. And God keeps a record. God keeps an accounting. He's got a book somewhere. And God keeps a recording of how much and how a person gives. Now, don't die on me because I know the quickest way to kill a camp meeting is to preach on giving. I, I understand that. But, but I told you it's only I, I don't have no more messages. It's all I got. And so... so and, and, and by the way, some preachers, they get all nervous and anxious about preaching about money and apologetic. And I, I've never had that problem. I, I actually like to preach on giving and money. In fact, Jesus did it a lot, and so I don't mind if I do myself. And so if you're a tightwad here tonight, then you're probably going to squirm a lot. And then we'll all know that you're a tightwad, so you better sit real still until I can get done. But, but, but here, 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 here's, here's, here's what I want you to see tonight is that there's a few times, there's a few times in the Bible that God recognizes, God sees what somebody gives and he mentions it. Sometimes you can give in such a way as to get the attention of God. There's a couple of times, not many, but a couple of times in the New Testament where somebody gives in a particular way, a particular offering that heaven recognizes it and heaven memorializes it in this book. Well, I got to thinking about that and it sent me off on a rabbit trail of what kind of giving gets the attention of heaven. The Holy Spirit obviously took note of the giving of the early church in the book of Acts, selling houses and lands and giving all of that. That got the attention of God. And, 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 and of course, Jesus sitting by the treasury noticed that widow woman giving her two mites, all that she had, that, that gets the attention of God. Of course, the churches of Macedonia, they, they have given, they are held up as examples. And so, so I wonder, can I become the kind of giver? Could I be the kind of giver that God would recognize? And, and, and then it sent me off on another little rabbit trail. I, I wonder who were the best givers in the Bible. We're always looking for the Bible example, aren't we? And so find an example about that. Find somebody that really was excelled in giving and, and try to emulate and try to, boy, this is really going over like a lead balloon, but, but, but it's all I got. And so I, I, I got to go on with it and we'll, we'll just get with it as best we can. I, I just thought, who in the Bible gave the best offerings? Who in the Bible gave the biggest offerings? Who in the Bible... Gave the most money. When the offering plate was passed, who, who was the best givers in the Bible? Offerings that were so big, that, that, that was just so extraordinary, that, that just, it's just remarkable that God would, would, would write it down. And every once in a while in the Bible, somebody would see a need, would step up to the plate, and would give in such a way that, that God would say, Holy Spirit, write that down. I want that memorialized in my book because I want people to see that that's the kind of giving that gets my attention. I'll give you an example, just, just an example. Go to Exodus chapter 36. I'll give you an example of the kind of giving that gets the attention of God. 
Exodus chapter 36. Exodus is the story uh, of a nation of slaves that God has redeemed from Egyptian bondage. And, and the last half of the book is taken up with building the, the tabernacle. The tabernacle is going to be the place of worship. They are redeemed people and redeemed people are worshiping people. And so God gives Moses the blueprint for the tabernacle. They're going to build it. They're going to make sacrifices. They're going to bring offerings there and they're going to confess their sins and the Shekinah glory of God is going to come down. And this tabernacle is going to be built by the free will offerings of the people. They're going to bring gold and silver and animals, all that kind of stuff. And that's what they're going to use to build the temple. Exodus chapter 36 tells you about that offering. Look, if you would, in verse number 3. They received of Moses all the offering which the children of Israel had brought for the work of the service of the sanctuary to make it with all. They brought yet unto him free offerings every morning. All the wise men that wrought all the work of the sanctuary came, every man from his work which they had made. Look at verse number 5. They spake unto Moses, saying, The people bring much more than enough for the service of the work which the Lord commanded to make. And Moses gave commandment. They caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp, saying, Let neither man nor woman make any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing. For the stuff that they had was sufficient for all the work to make it and too much. In almost 24 years of pastoring the Baptist church, I've never taken up a too big offering. Never have. I have never, Brother Gravity, got up on Sunday morning and said, Now, folks, today we're not taking an offering. I don't want you to tithe. Because last Sunday's offering was so big, we don't know what to do with it yet. We need you folks to stop giving, just kind of hold off, and we've got to spend some more, and we've got to kind of get to catch up on the spending. But we, I, I've never had to do that. I've had some offerings that met the need exactly. I've had some offerings that exceeded the need. I have never had an offering that was too much. And here are some slaves. They're giving a free will offering. And it is such a remarkable, it's so big, it's so extravagant, it's so outlandish that God mentions it. God records the offering. Now I'll tell you real quick, quickly tonight, I'll, I'll tell you what makes this particular offering so great. It's the size of it. Now, if you'll read the financial report on your own, you will read that they have given 2,000 pounds of gold, 7,500 pounds of silver, and 5,300 pounds of brass. And as far as I can find in the Bible, there's never been an offering like that before. There is no group of people ever in the history of the world up to this point that has given that kind of offering to build a house of worship in. There's never been an offering that big and God said, write it down. And I'll tell you what made that offering so special is not just the size of it, but the sacrifice of it. These are ex-slaves that have been working as slaves for the last 400 years. 
and they don't have jobs and they don't have retirement accounts and they don't have IRAs and they don't have a steady income and, and, and they don't have a nest egg to fall back on. And in fact, they're getting ready to go to a promised land and they're going to need some resources there to build houses and to buy livestock and to start businesses. And they're giving the money that they're going to need down the road, but they're willing to sacrifice and that impressed God. I tell you what makes it so remarkable is the size of it, the sacrifice of it. It's the spirit behind it. You can look at it, chapter 35 and verse 5. Whosoever is of a willing heart. Verse 21, everyone whom his spirit made willing. Verse 22, as many as were willing hearted. Verse 29, they brought a willing offering unto the Lord. They're not pumped. They're not pushed. They're not prodded. They're not primed. They're not pulled into it. They wanted to give this offering. It is of a willing heart. Nobody accuses the preacher. All you do is preach on money. Nobody is accusing him of being a money grabber. Nothing like nobody's griping. Nobody's going home gossiping about the No, this is a willing offering. And I'll tell you what makes the offering so spectacular is the size of it, the sacrifice of it, the spirit behind it, and the supply of it. Look, if you would, in verse number 7. For the stuff they had was sufficient for all the work to make it. The offering is enough. They didn't have to take out a loan. They didn't have to sell bonds. They didn't have to have a picnic. They didn't have to have a churchyard sale. They, they, they didn't have to wash cars. They didn't have to sell a pew, sell a brick. No, they got enough to do the work. Amen. And, and here's what I want you to see tonight. Here's what I want you to see tonight, all right? Now stay with me. I, I am actually going to go somewhere here in just a minute, all right? Here's what I want you to see. God looked down and saw those people giving all of that stuff to build that tabernacle. And God said, hey, Holy Spirit, do you see what my people are doing? I mean, look at that. I want you to write it down. Because generations down the road, I want people to hear and people to see what kind of sacrifice, what kind of, that's historic. That's what, I've never seen giving like that before. Write that down. It's the kind of giving that impresses God. Go, go, to, go, to, go, 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 go to 1 Chronicles chapter 22. I'll show you another one tonight. 1 Chronicles chapter 22. David is sitting in a luxurious palace. He's bothered about something. Here's what he's bothered about. See, now I dwell in a house of cedar. The ark of God dwelleth within curtains. You see, what the problem is, is that the tabernacle was a tent-like structure. It's designed for people on the move. It is suited for wilderness wanderings, but they are not in the wilderness any longer. They've settled down into a land. They've got cities. Everybody's got houses. And David has a palace fit for the king. But the presence of God still resides in the tent. And so David, he wants to do something about that. And so what he wants to do is he wants to build a house that would be honoring to God. In this chapter, don't have time to preach it, but David tells his plans to Nathan the prophet. Nathan thinks it's a good idea. Then he prays about it. That God says, no, not a good idea. Good idea, but not the best idea because it's not my idea. And, and so David's not allowed to build the temple. It's going to be Solomon. You know, David's the bloody man. Solomon's going to build the temple. Now, here's what David gets to do. Since you can't build the temple, I'm going to let you finance it. All right? David, I'll let you give an offering. I'll let you provide the material, but it's not going to be David's temple. It's going to be Solomon's temple. Somebody else is going to build it. 
Now, now look, if you would, chapter 22, stay with me. Look at verse number 14. Here's the offering that David gives to the temple. Now behold, in my trouble, I have prepared for the house of the Lord a hundred thousand talents of gold and a thousand thousand talents of silver and a breast and iron without weight. It is in abundance. Timber also, stone have I prepared that thou mayest add therein. Look at verse 16. Of the gold, the silver, and the brass, and the iron, there is no number. If I can't build the temple, then let me give an offering. Let me write a check to pay for building the temple. And he gives an offering, one man, not a nation, one man right now is opening up his checkbook. One man is opening up his purse and giving an offering. And I'm telling you, this man gives in such a way that God Almighty saw what he gave and God recorded it. And I'll tell you you what makes his offering so spectacular. It's the size of it. The offering that one man gives, you compare what the, what the children of Israel gave and what David gave and what you will find is that one man has now outgiven a nation. 3,000 talents of gold, 112 tons. 7,000 talents of silver, that's 260 tons. The size of it. I'll tell you what makes it such a spectacular offering is the sacrifice of it. Somebody tried to calculate what David's offering would be in today's economy. They said it was like $800 million. I don't know if that's true or not. David is a king. However, even being a wealthy king, that's not too shabby of an offering even for a king. And what makes it so great is not just the size of it and the sacrifice of it, but the spirit behind it. You see, the most remarkable thing about it is that he's building a temple that won't have his name on it. He's giving, and by the way, Solomon won't build the temple until David is dead. So what he's doing, he's giving money to build a church he won't worship in. That's right. Giving money to build somebody else a church. But here's his attitude. Just let me be involved some way. I don't care if I get the glory. I don't care if somebody else's name is on it. But just let me have a, just let me write a check. Just let me finance it somehow. Solomon can do the work. Solomon can have the glory. But let me at least have a part in the offering. It's a good spirit, isn't it? I, I, I tell you what's so remarkable about it is the supply of it. If you'll read 2 Chronicles 1 through 4, Solomon builds the temple, chapter 5 and verse 1. Thus all the work that Solomon made for the house of the Lord was finished. David gave and the job was finished. Queen of Sheba comes and her breath is taken away. I'm telling you that is a remarkable offering and one individual has never, has never given an offering like that before and God saw that and God's looking down from heaven. He said, Holy Spirit, do you see what David is doing? Do you see the gold and the silver that he's bringing? Write this down because I want my people down to the generations to know this is the kind of offering that impresses me. Can I show you one more? Can I show you another one? I know, I know you're loving this, but I, I, it's all I got. Second Chronicles 24. Second Chronicles chapter 24. I'll show you another one tonight. The kind of giving that impresses God. Second Chronicles 24. There's a king. His name is Joash. He's got a burden for the house of God. It's been neglected. It's run down. And Joash is worried about that. There was a day when the glory of God came down, but that was a long time ago. And now when he walks into the temple, he sees where it's been neglected and desecrated by wicked men. And the building is dilapidated and the paint is peeling off the walls and and, and the carpet is shabby and there's stains all over it and the boards are pulling loose. And he says, you know what? The house of God ought not look this way. 
No, 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 this is coming where we come to worship God. And if this is where we come to worship God, this ought to look like a place fitting for God. So in chapter 24 and verse number 4, Verse number four, here's what he says. It came to pass after this, Joash was minded to repair the house of the Lord. Verse five, he gathered together the priests and the Levites. Here's what he said. Go out into the cities of Judah. Gather of all Israel money, money to repair the house of your God from year to year and see that you hasten the matter. He knew it's going to take money to do the job. So he calls in the Levites, said, I want you to go out. Take some offering plates. Go house to house. I want you to collect an offering from the people. Let's gather some money and see if we can raise some funds to, to, to finance this work. Now, Now, I know that these are not Baptist Levites. And the reason why is because in verse 5 it says, Howbeit the Levites hastened not. He's just told them to go take up an offering and they're dragging their feet. And I'll tell you the reason why. Now, now, now you, you, I'll show you something. If you look in verse number 5, Howbeit the Levites, in the Hebrew language, that, le- that word Levites, here's what it means. Deacon. It does. It means deacon. And here's what they said. This is the worst possible time in the world to be starting any kind of building program. I mean, the economy's down. People are out of work. Ain't nobody got any money. Men are losing their jobs. Interest rates are crazy. Preacher is loco. Stock market's going kerplunk. This is really a bad time. Hasten not. So, in verse number 8, at the king's commandment, they made a chest, set it without at the gate of the house of the Lord, made a proclamation through Judah and Jerusalem to bring it to the Lord, the collection that Moses, the servant of God, laid upon Israel in the wilderness. All the princes, all the people rejoiced, brought in, cast into the chest until they made it in. came to pass at what time the chest was brought into the king's office by the hand of Levi. When they saw that there was much money, the king's scribe and the high priest officer came, emptied the chest, took it, carried it to his place to, again. Thus they they did day by day and gathered money in abundance. Here's what happened. He said, just find us a box. Just find them a box. Find them a chest. And they set it out there at the gate of the temple. Put the word out. People got under a burden. They started coming, putting money in the box. And pretty soon, about noon, the box was full. The Levites had to come, get the box, take it into the temple, empty it, come out, set the box out again. And lo and behold, they filled the box up again. And day after day after day, they had filled that box up. And people just kept on coming. And as many times as you set the box out, they filled the box up with money. And God in heaven was looking at that. He is watching these crazy people just keep putting money and filling up the box and filling up the box and filling up the box. And God said, that's remarkable. I mean, that is impressive. And I'll tell you tonight what's so remarkable about that offering. It's the size of it. Now, we're not told the dollar amount, but they've had to fill the box twice a day. Now, at our church, we got a good giving church. But our giving, at our church, we use offering plates. Yes. Thin, skinny plates. <laughs> I've never had to use boxes. Never had. One time we used Kentucky Fried Chicken buckets. But that was real optimism is what that was. I was trying to give a subliminal message to the church. They didn't get it, but I was trying. We pass our plates. We pass our plates once a service. It's sufficient. It's sufficient. I've never had to use a box. I'll tell you what's so remarkable about the offering. Stay with me. I am actually going somewhere. I do actually have a message in a minute. I'll tell you what's remarkable is the sacrifice of it. 
Now, I'm going to tell you, to fill up a box a couple of times a day, somebody's putting everything they got in. Somebody is emptying their bank account. I mean, we're not just dropping in a dollar or a quarter. No, somebody is selling their stuff. Somebody's digging up the can in the backyard. Somebody's getting the stuff they hid under the mattress. That's a sacrifice. And I'll tell you what's so remarkable about the offering is the spirit of it. It says in verse number 10, it says in verse number 10, all the princes, all the people rejoice. This is a happy offering. Happy time. I hate when they go to take an offering, everybody bows their head and gets all sad and mournful. I, I, I hate when you play funeral music at the offering. No, this is happy time. I tell my pianist, I said, we take the offering. You play something happy, lively, jazzy, rock and roll. I don't care, but I want something live. I want something some life in it. Happy, it's a happy offering. Amen. I tell you what makes it so remarkable is the supply of it. If you'll look at verse number 12, the king and Jehoiada give it to such as did the work of the service of the house of the Lord and hired masons and carpenters to repair the house of the Lord and also did as much wrought iron and brass to mend the house of the Lord. And, 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 and in verse 14, when they finished it, when they finished it, they brought the rest of the money, the rest of the money. I mean, workers are hired and, 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 and there's money. They, they have money to do everything they need and there's money left over. And God watches these people keep giving and giving and giving. And God says, that's remarkable. That's the kind of giving that impresses me. And I just got to thinking about offerings, offerings. Being the kind of giver that would impress God. Just being the kind of, to to be able to give a one-time, historic, remarkable kind of offering nobody ever has been able to give before. Just, just, can, can I give you one more tonight? I promise you one more. I've got several. I'll just give you one more tonight. I promise you I'm done. Because there is a man. There is a man in the Bible that, that gave an offering. And, and, and it's remarkable. I'm, I'm, when, I, when I tell you about it, 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 is, it is absolutely historical. And, and, and in, fact, in fact, I don't know that it, in fact, I know nobody ever gave an offering like that. But there is a man in the Bible. There was a man in the Bible that saw a need. And was a need that nobody else can meet. And, 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 and David gave a good offering, but, but not like this man gave. And, and the nation of Israel, I mean, they gave a lot of money, but, but not, like, not, not like this man. There, there is a man. There, there's a man in the Bible. Don't get ahead of me. That's rude. There, there's a man in the Bible. There's a man in the Bible. That I'm telling you that he saw a need, that he saw a need, and, and, and he knew that he could meet the need. In fact, he was the only one that could meet the need, because he's the only one that had the means to meet the need. And, and so, so, so he decided to step up to the plate. Didn't have to voluntarily, but he decided to step up to the plate, and he decided that he'd give an offering to meet the need. And, and I'm telling you that when he, when he gave the offering, I'm telling you that heaven stood still and, and, and the earth trembled and, and angels wept when he gave the offering. And when he gave the offering, God said, did you see that? What a remarkable offering. What a gift. What a sacrifice. I'm telling you, I'm telling you that he gave an offering that's greater than any offering, greater than any sacrifice. Paid a cost that nobody ever paid. I mean, paid a price nobody's ever been able to pay. 
Oh, y'all don't know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about Hebrews chapter 7. For such an high priest has become us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, made higher from the heaven, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for himself, then for the people. For this he did was when he offered up himself for our sins. Paul said we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. After he had offered one sacrifice for sin forever, sat down at the right hand of God for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. And I just wanted to come tonight because I only had two ties, two changes of underwear and two sermons. That's all I've got. But I just wanted to come tonight and say, what an offering. What a sacrifice. What a gift. I mean, I mean, you're talking about historical. You're talking about remarkable. You're talking about once in a lifetime. You're talking about like something nobody ever has been able to do. I tell you that nobody has ever given as much as he has. Nobody has ever paid as much as he has paid. Nobody has ever met a need like he has paid. Nobody has ever accomplished what his offering has accomplished. What an offering. It's empty, it's empty, it's empty, it's empty. How am I going to preach? It's empty. I need some help here. I got to hurry, I got to hurry, I got to hurry. Cause I, I, I got to hurry. I'll tell you, I'll tell you tonight. I'll tell you tonight. If I can just tell you tonight. Why that offering is so remarkable. Because of the size of it. I want to just remind you. When you look at that cross, that that is the Son of God. I want to remind you that that is the darling Lamb of God. I hope it don't mess up your theology. But I want you to know that on that cross is the eternal God. It is not one of the cherubims. It is not one of the archangels. No, it is not a prophet or a priest or a king. He did not offer a planet for our redemption. It's not a pile of gold and a pile of silver. For, for you know that you're not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as the lamb without blemish and without spot. This, this is he of whom John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom the Father said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is he of whom Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is he of whom Pilate said, I find no fault in him. I'm telling you, it's remarkable because of the size of it. The size of it. I, I, I got to hurry, but I, can I mention something real quick? I was thinking, I was thinking, I was thinking, I was thinking. Leviticus chapter 16. Day of atonement. Highest day, holiest day in Israel's history. Day of atonement. High priest puts on the priestly garments. Offers a bullock for himself. A ram for the sins of the people. Goes in the holy place. Holy of holies. Only time. Only day in the year that he goes in there. Sprinkles of blood on the mercy seat. Day of atonement. Tones for sins for the nation for the entire year. And on the day of atonement, he does something he doesn't do on any other year. The Bible says, go over and read Leviticus 16. Comes, comes out to, before the people. And he takes two goats. And he casts lots. Yes. And one goat is a sacrificial goat and one goat is a scapegoat. Yes. The goat that's a sacrificial goat, he takes the goat, takes it to the altar. Cuts its throat, spills the blood. Takes the blood in holy, holy holies. 
sprinkles the mercy seat. And then he goes over to that scapegoat. And the Bible says that he lays his hands upon the heads of that goat, laying hands symbolically transferring. And he confesses the sins of the nation on that goat. He sends that goat away. And in that story, there's four characters. There's a high priest. That high priest is the mediator, the advocate, the go-between between God and man. And that high priest, he represents none other than Jesus Christ, who's my mediator, my advocate, my, my daysman, my go-between. But at the end of that story, there's the sacrificial goat, innocent goat, that is made to spill blood, shed blood for sins of somebody else. And that goat... There's a picture of none other than Jesus Christ who shed his blood for my sins. My sins. But then there's the scapegoat where he transfers symbolically the sins of the people to that goat and that goat symbolically becomes the sin bearer. And that scapegoat is a picture of none other than Jesus Christ who bore my sins in his body on the tree. But Leviticus 16, you'll find it only in that chapter, only in that chapter. The Bible says when he takes his, he puts his hands on the head of that scapegoat, confesses the sins of the people, the Bible says that he is led by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. It's the only time in the Bible that you'll find that fit man. And that fit man ties a rope around the neck of that goat. Here's what his job is. You take that goat out into the wilderness far far away, carrying my sins. And you take that goat far, far away where that goat can't never come back into camp reminding me of my sins. And I'll tell you who the fit man is a picture of. He's a picture of none other than Jesus Christ. That's my fit man who carried my sins far, far away. I'll tell you, if I'd have been in Israel that day on the Day of Atonement, if I'd have been watching that, I'd be interested in who the fit man is. Don't get a kid. Don't get a teenager. Don't get a sissy. Get somebody with some courage. Somebody that'll finish the job. I don't want somebody that's going to go halfway. Don't just take him around the corner. I want you to be able to navigate the wilderness better than the goat. I want you to take him far, far, far away. I don't want that goat coming back next week. Remind me of my sins. I'd want that fit man to do the job and take it far, far away. When that fit man is done and he comes back before he comes into the camp, he's to go outside the camp and he's to go to a creek and he's to wash himself and wash all of his clothes before he comes in the back into camp. And here's the reason why. For the last three or four days he's been with a goat. And if he comes back in town smelling like that, he's going to remind me of my sins. I tell you tonight that I've never gone to my fit man and he'll remind me of my sins. I've never gone to my fit man. And he said, he said, I want to remind you. I want to remind you. He never done that. What an offering. The size of it. I've got to hurry. I, I do. I, I tell you what makes the offering so big. It's the sacrifice of it. Do not forget. Do not forget. That he left the portals of glory for a sin-cursed earth. That he subjected himself to the weaknesses of human flesh, that he endured the taunts and the blasphemies of wicked men, that he suffered at the hands of Roman soldiers, that he laid down his life in trusting his father 
to raise him up again. And I just want to say tonight, it's all I've got. Ain't nobody ever gave that for me. Nobody ever did that for me before. Ain't nobody, nobody ever gave an offering that much for me. I got to hurry. Can I mention one thing? I preached some time ago. It's been a long time. Matthew chapter 26, Jesus goes into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray with his disciples. And the Bible says that he leaves his disciples and phrases found twice. He went a little farther. Went a little farther. Those disciples can go so far, but he went a little farther. Those three, those three, they can go a little farther. But when the last man has stopped, he went a little farther, a little farther. Say, how far did he go? Tell you how far he went. All the way from glory to the globe. Yes. There's a lot trying to get from the globe to glory. There ain't many trying to leave heaven to come down here. Came down to this sin-cursed earth. Tonight, tonight there will be hundreds of illegal aliens swim across a river trying to leave one country and go to another. And they'll all be going in one direction. They'll all be trying to come here. But ain't nobody trying to leave here and go over there. Nobody ever went that far. Nobody has ever left glory and came to the globe for me. But if that's as far as he goes, I'll die and go to hell. But I'm glad he went a little farther. Say, how far did he go? All the way from the globe to Gethsemane. Now, I don't know if we've ever fully entered into the agonies of Gethsemane. Sweat as it were, great drops of blood. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Nobody's ever went that far from me. Nobody's ever agonized over my sins so much that they sweat as it were, great drops of blood. But if that's as far as he goes, I'll die and go to hell. But he went a little farther. So how far did he go? All the way from Gethsemane to Gabbatha, Pilate's Hall. There he endured the mockery taunts, the plucking of the beard, the slapping of the face, the spittle, finally the scourging. And nobody ever went that far from me. Nobody would ever take that much sacrifice and that much shame for my sins. But that's as far as he goes. I'll die and go to hell. I'm glad he went a little farther. Say, how far did he go? All the way from Gabbatha to Golgotha. Stretch his arms out on a cross. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit and died. Ain't nobody ever died for my sins before. Ain't nobody ever went that far from me. But a dead Savior don't save anybody. If that's as far as he goes, I'll die and go to hell. It went a little farther. How far did he go? All the way from Golgotha to the grave. Three days, three nights. Early one Sunday morning up. From the grave he arose. Didn't stay in the grave. Didn't stay there. No, he went a little farther. How far did he go? All the way from the grave. Back to glory. Sat down at the right hand of the Father. Praying for me right now. And when he sat down, the Father said, That's far enough. Far enough. Went a little farther. I tell you what makes the sacrifice so great tonight. It's the size of it. It's the sacrifice of it. It's the spirit of it. Why did he do it? Because he loves sinners. Because he's got a heart full of grace and mercy. Because he wanted to forgive those who would come to him. And from the cross, there are no words of anger. There's no words of bitterness. There's no words of animosity. 
In fact, the Bible says that he endured the cross, despising the shame. I believe with all of my heart, he could have called 10,000 angels at any moment to come and end the spectacle and take him down from the cross. But he endured the cross. He despised the shame. He felt every bit of it in every fiber of his soul and his body. But yet, he endured it. Why? Who for the joy that was set before him. There was a joy. He saw something out there that would give him great joy. But you've got to go through the valley. You've got to go through the pain and the suffering and the crucifixion. And if you'll endure this, if you'll despise this, if you go through this, there's something out there beyond the cross that will bring you. What is it? He saw the day on September the 27th, 1976, when a little seven-year-old boy in the back bedroom of a white country house in Muskogee Road in Cantonment, Florida, would bow his heart and would trust Jesus. Christ as a Savior and the joy that would give him for my sins to be forgiven and to be called a child of the King and a son of the Father. That's the joy for which he endured the cross. He hated, he hated what the Father would do to him. But he loved what the Father would do for me. I'll tell you what's so great about it. It's the size of it. It's the sacrifice of it. It's the spirit of it. I tell you what makes it so great. It's the supply of it. I don't know what it means for you. But for me, it means that every sin is forgiven. For me, it means that I am welcomed into the family of God. For me, it means I'm not going to hell when I die. That's what it means. And sitting in this room tonight are men that used to be drunkards and dopers and adulterers. And here you sit tonight with a Bible in your lap and Jesus in your heart. You love your wife and your kids love you and you're in your right mind. You've got peace and joy and love. And we sit here tonight and we're singing and we're praising and we're shouting like we're somebody. What in the world made the difference? How did the drunk become the preacher? What, 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 what happened to you? I'll tell you what it is. It's the power of the cross. It's the power of the blood. It's what grace can do. It's what mercy can do. It's what the love of God can do. What an offering. What a gift. And God was watching. And when his son died on that cross... I believe that God said, Holy Spirit, write it down. Make sure that that's in that book you're writing. Because I want all the world to know about the offering that my son gave.